0: i draw your attention back this morning to God's Word found in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we'll read verses 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, that we can once again come before you, Lord, as a body of believers, as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters to worship you. Lord, we have one simple request this morning that we might see your glory. Lord, that we might see your glory displayed in your mercy we might be see your glory displayed in in your love and in your grace and Lord in seeing something of that great glory this morning that we might bow and we might worship Lord open your word up to us this morning give us eyes to see and ears to hear your name we pray amen well I don't really have an introduction this morning I think the introduction to what we're looking at this morning is what we dealt with last Sunday. The first three verses of Ephesians 2, which we've just read, uh, as the introduction to what we're going to be dealing with. I think sometimes it's, it's important for us to realize the state that we're in, what we have been brought out of. The position that we have where we once started. Sometimes it's more meaningful to understand life when we have tasted something of death, when we have in some small manner been given knowledge as to what we have escaped. My grandfather uh, fought in World War II. He was was a medic in uh, the army and he was, uh, went in in France. Uh, my understanding is he was very secretive about all of this, but my understanding is that he fought during the, didn't fight. He, uh, he was one of those that didn't carry a gun, but he was a medic even during the Battle of the Bulge, is my understanding. Well, he told a story, one of the few stories that he related to us about his time during World War II, was that he was supposed, he, he and his unit were supposed to have been moved via railroad and something happened that they got tied up and weren't able to get on that train. That train that they were supposed to have been on was blown up. Everyone perished. I think that's something of what we see here this morning and what we have seen last week, what we are saved from. How much more valuable does life seem... When we know what it is that we've been rescued from or saved from, or that that hangs over us, this wrath of God that by his mercy and his grace have been put upon another. So let's look here this morning. We now come to the part of Paul's letter in verse 4 where there is a most glorious turn. In what Paul is dealing with here. A much needed remedy for a deadly diagnosis, a cure for the corruption of mind and soul. As for the present, one commentator noted, as for the present paragraph is concerned, the tragic account of man's forlorn condition is finished. The main idea of the section we are dealing with was never reached in verse 1 or 2 of this chapter. The text we dealt with last week, verses 1 and 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2, it was but digging the foundation so to speak for the main idea which first must first be addressed prior to this glorious display that we see and that we will begin to see here in our text this morning. The you here that we read of in verse 2, that includes, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 2. The you that we read of includes not only the saints in Ephesus, Ephesus, but the saints elsewhere and and even us. And these that he is writing to, the you here, must not be left hanging on a cliff's edge. The reader must not be left in a state of wrath and torment that verses 1 through 3 produce when there is rescue that is over the horizon. And it makes its way to us in verse 4. It is high time to be brought from despair to joy, from misery to felicity, from the destitution of death to the liberation of life. What we have seen in the preceding verses, verses 1 through 3, is that which is true of all mankind, setting up for us, the desperate condition of all mankind that, are, that has fallen in sin. Here it is that we find ourselves as well, and I do believe that had Paul, our author, closed out his letter in verse 3, if he had done nothing but laid out and laid open our desperate condition to us, shown us what a dreadful condition we are in, with the punishment and wrath of Almighty God upon us, Such is our case that we deserve this wrath, and it's due to us by our state and and even by our nature we read of in verse 3. We would be left with hopelessness. Listen to these words again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If left here, we would be utterly and hopelessly despairing. But here is exactly where we find the words, But God. Here is a happy turn, a joyous pivot, a beam of hope, as one says. As one of the commentators called it, a beam of hope. Breaking out now to poor prisoners. Here is the richest vein and the deepest mine, laid open for us, which even the angels long to see. What is going on with the redemption of God's people? There is no redemption for fallen angels, but there is mercy for the people of God. Ponder that. There is no redemption for angels, but He has made a way whereby we might be redeemed, that we maybe have, might have mercy and grace. It is a mind, we read, that is of God, and it tells us, "...but God who is rich in mercy." It's like a bottomless storehouse, the deepest vein, shining bright in the utter darkness of the darkest mind. That's where he puts us in verses 1 through 3, doesn't it? Down in the deep bowels of the earth in the darkness, and here he shines a brilliant light. Did you find yourself thinking last week, is there any good news? Is it all deadness, all wrath, all sin, and all trespass? Do you remember the revival that we talked about several weeks ago on the Isle of Lewis, there in 1949. Do you remember the movement of God's Spirit amongst this large group of people on this secluded island in Scotland? Do you remember the young lady that came to the church, along with those six or seven hundred people that gathered? And this is about 11 o'clock at night. All of a sudden, after a meeting, a group of six to seven hundred people showed up, all weighed down with the burden of their sin, showed up outside this church about 11 o'clock at night. And there was a, a, a lady that came, an educated young lady. And she was awakened to everything that we read about in verses 1 through 3. And it weighed her down. And when the minister got up to speak in the pulpit, he found her lying on the floor of the pulpit And she was crying out, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Fear gripping her under the load of her sin. Burdened down by the unbearable weight of her sin, seeing her condition and her abject misery at being under that load. Felt herself alienated from God. And under his wrath, crying out in search of a remedy. We have good news for one who is searching for mercy. A bright, shining light of hope. A joyous declaration found here in our text. But God, is there mercy for me? She asks. But God. But is there mercy for me? But God. Is there mercy for me, but God who is rich in mercy? Young lady, we could tell her, here is freedom from your burden. Here is your relief. Yes, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, you are following the course of this world. Yes, you are following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passion of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By nature, yes, you are a children of wrath, like all the rest of us, but God, who is rich in mercy. Well, what is mercy? It is a desire to help the miserable. A desire to help the miserable. It is the willingness to show compassion to those who you are able and have authority to punish. God has the right, the authority, and the power to punish the guilty. But he's rich in mercy. It is God Almighty not giving us what we deserve, not giving those whom he chose what they deserve. The children of wrath not receiving what is theirs by what they deserve. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he describes himself like this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent to God. That's the way he describes himself. Guilty and under the wrath of God, but Paul tells us, but I received mercy. Listen to the, to, to the rest of this thought, as Paul draws it out in First 1 Timothy 1:13 1, through17. He says, "Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul can't help when he understands the mercy and the grace that's been bestowed upon him. He can't help but break forth into doxology when he reflects on this. Mercy deserving wrath. The chief of sinners, says Paul, but I received mercy. Mercy. Mercy, says a man, a pastor by the name of Kent Hughes, is not simply feeling compassion. He says mercy is not just simply feeling compassion. Mercy exists when something is done to alleviate distress. When something is done to alleviate distress. Turn with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to turn to a few uh, scriptures this morning, so bear with me. We have one lengthy that we'll be turning to, and I will read through it fairly fast. But Exodus 3, 1 through 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight, why the, why, the, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said... I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, now listen, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction, the distress of my people, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to do a a good and brought to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites the Hittites the Amorites the Perizzites the Hivites and the Jebusites and now behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I also I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He heard their distress. And he not only had compassion upon them, he made a remedy for their distress. He made a way to alleviate their distress. He showed them mercy. Here we see what Kent Hughes is saying, not simply feeling compassion, but something being done to alleviate the distress. Mercy takes away misery. Mercy takes away misery. And it's not mercy alone that we read about in this mercy, but because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at Ephesians 2. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. This takes us all the way back to the love of the Father we find in chapter 1, where Ephesians 1 4 through 5 tells us, even as He chose us in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In love, He predestined us. The foundation of this mercy that we read about, but God who is rich in mercy, the foundation for that is the steadfast and sure love of God. Turn with me to Psalm 107. Let's look at this in a very, very practical manner. And I'm going to read through this because we're going to read quite a few verses here. We're going to read 1 through 32 of Psalm 107. I want you to focus on the alleviating the distress and the cause of for the mercy, that, uh, that alleviating the distress, that doing away with the distress, giving them help in the time of their misery, being the love of God. As we read through this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble And gathered in from the lands, and from the east, and from the west, and from the north, and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till He reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts or bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and from the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, for He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food as they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love and His wondrous works to the children of man." And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds and songs of joy; some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which he lifted up the, which, he, which lifted up the waves of the sea, they mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' ends. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Over and over again, We see here the mercy of God. Born about under the foundation of His steadfast love for His people. Relief from distress, relief from the burden of sin, this unbearable condition of being weighed down, hopelessness, helplessness, Inability to free oneself from this. Did we not read about that over and over again in Psalm 107? Oh, but because of steadfast love, He delivered us from our distress, rescued us from our lost condition, taking away the misery of our lostness and deadness to Him. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. There was once a man in L.A uh, who was in misery. He was a homosexual, He was a leader of the Hollywood Gay Pride parade. Uh, diagnosed with and dying of AIDS, and he was in fear of death. <clears throat> felt the burden of the unbearable weight of sin, and he feared to die in that condition. And he asked, "Where can I go to find relief?" Where can I go to find mercy in my time of need? And he was pointed to Grace Community Church, and there he found himself one Sunday morning. And the pastor of the church, MacArthur, read that Sunday from Psalm 107, where we just read. The man was captivated by the words of God that were found in Psalm 107. Being led by a straight way. Had a lot of meaning to him. "...for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. He was a man faced with death, physical death, drawing very close and God opening his eyes to see the state of spiritual death he was in, bound in sin, captive to the passions of his flesh, carrying about the desires of the body and the mind." By nature, a child of wrath like the rest of all of us, like the rest of all mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, almighty love arrested that man that day in the hearing of what took place in Psalm 107. The mercy of God in alleviating the distress of those who are burdened and weighted down with sin. And he delivered him, and he lived out the remainder of his life, remainder of his days, thanking the Lord for his steadfast love, (coughs) preaching the gospel to those who were once his friends. It's the mercy, but God who is rich in mercy. And we find that in verse 5, that this mercy is extended to us because of this great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even in that condition, God bestowed upon us His love and His mercy. Paul here goes back to the reminder so that he reminds the reader of what they were. This is something that we must never lose sight of we must never lose sight of the fact that we are sinners saved. We're sinners saved. We were dead in trespasses, even when we were dead. The ones God's mercy and love and grace has been bestowed upon are ones who are no longer overcome with despair, Because of it, no longer in deadly anguish regarding their sin and their trespass, they are nevertheless constantly pointed back to the fact that this is what we once were. This is to show us the immensity of this love, the greatness of this love, the vastness of this love which pours mercy upon the ones who deserve none of it. Ian Hamilton states it like this, From one perspective, the greatness of God's love is seen in the objects of His, of His love. He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. Romans 5, 6-8 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person... One would dare even to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the greatness of His love. Not like the worldly love where one might die for a good man, but never think of dying for an evil man. Christ died while we were yet Sinners. Do we even in some small measure begin to understand this that while we were most unlovable, He loved us, even when we were dead in trespass? Hamilton goes further and tells us that there is something deeper here to the love of God. He says it was God's love that gave us a Savior. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, we know this verse. It's one of the first verses most people memorize. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In First John four ten, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation. For our sins sent his son to be a satisfaction. That's what this word propitiation means. While we were sinners dead in trespasses and sins, unlovable alienated from him, children of wrath at enmity to God. In love, he sent his son to satisfy his wrath. He sent his son and poured out his wrath on him. Our substitute, Christ Jesus, bore our sins on the cross, bearing the shame, ridiculed, treated as though He Himself was sinful, so that we might be reconciled to the Father at the expense of His Son. Herein is love. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is a love that will transcend anything that the world has to offer and can even begin to think of. How do we know that this is a true book and not man's a figment of their imagination. Man can never come up with something like this. This is of God. There is nothing in us deserving of this love. Nothing at all, but He displayed it to us, loved us, even when we were undeserving, even when we were dead in trespass. And in love, He made us alive together with Christ. This is a most remarkable thing. This is a miraculous thing that we read about here. God made us alive together with Christ. And just in case we are tempted to once again lean back into pride, or lean back into sin, he interjects here. By grace, you have been saved. By grace. Paul seems to interject here and skip ahead because his heart is overflowing in gratitude for that which he doesn't deserve. By grace are you saved. So he gives us a snippet right here in verse 5 to make it abundantly clear, this is done in mercy, in love, and in grace so that we have no avenue, no claim, nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. And he takes this and he interjects this here because he can't wait hardly to declare this to us. He can't wait to get to verse 8. Which we'll, which we'll deal with later. He then goes on to finish the thought. He started <clears throat> by saying God made us alive together with Christ. And now he finishes thought and he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here is the miraculous. Here is one of the great and largely incomprehensible truths that we find in scripture to our finite, small minds. Something that is almost impossible to comprehend. This union of Christ to the church made up of individual believers, which he mentions in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, when he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. This union is so intimate. So bound together are the people of God, those who are chosen Those who are adopted, redeemed, forgiven, as we read about in Ephesians 1, so bound in this union are the people of God to their Savior and head that they were made alive, resurrected with Him, they were raised up with Him, and they were seated in heavenly places with Him. If you want to blow your mind, think about this for a few moments that all these things took place in the past and we were with him. Though these things, and it's most true and appropriate to say that these things happen in due time to each one of those whom the father has chosen at the same time as they will be done in due time they are already a work that is done. When Christ died, when he rose again, when he ascended to heavenly places and was given the seat at the right hand of the Father, we were in him. The life of the whole body is in the head. We touched on this a little bit a few weeks ago. The life of the body is in the head, and when our head was raised, the body was also raised. When the head ascended, the body ascended. And when our head was seated at the right hand, the body was also seated, each in order, as 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two through 23 tells us, for as in Adam, all died. We were all in Adam so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. We talked about this previously in reference to our union with Adam. The first Adam in the garden, we all died. Well, then in the second Adam, we have all been made alive, all experienced in union to him who is our head, the second Adam, Christ Jesus. In one sense, in the mind of God, all of this is already accomplished, as good as already done, even as they will be accomplished in due time and fully and finally realized. In the first place, the fruits of that received in our union to Christ and what He did are already being enjoyed. Think about the moment the burden of your sin was loosed and you were set free. Already the benefits being enjoyed. In the second place, there is a continuation of these things and the final consummation of this, these things has been rendered and made certain in the nature of the union between Christ, the head, and the body, God's people. All that was necessary... For their final consummation is already completed in Christ when He was resurrected, when He ascended, and when He was seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. All by our heads merit. Not the bodies. The body had no merit. It's all our head, Jesus Christ, who merited these things for us. But the body being crowned as the head is being crowned with all the blessings due and merited by Him and flowing through, the bo- through Him to the body. All of these blessings, all of these blessings that we have through our head. In other words, we don't receive the full and complete blessing. This is, we don't receive this all at once in full measure. But the right to receive it has been fully secured And sealed. We've already dealt with this a little bit from Ephesians 1. William Hendrickson says, The new life has already begun. Even now, our life is hid with Christ in God. He says, Our names are inscribed in heaven's register, our interest is being promoted here. We are being governed by heavenly standards and motivated by heavenly impulses. The blessings of heaven constantly descend upon us. Heaven's grace fills our hearts. Its power enables us to be more than conquerors. And to heaven, our thoughts aspire and our prayers ascend. My friends, even now we have our our representative in heaven. Our head is there who lives to intercede for us and is pouring out his spirit to make alive those for whom he dies rose who died rose ascended and seated and he pours out that spirit upon his people as the guarantee and the seal of all that awaits us in the consummation of these things is that not what we dealt with in Ephesians 1 Think of the significance and the implications of this for us, God's people. We are no longer of this world. It's hard when you live in this world if you think of yourself as belonging to this world. We no longer belong to this world. Philippians 3:20 says, "But our citizenship is where? It's in heaven." And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 1-3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Not the things that are down here on earth. But seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ, who is seated in heavenly places. And since we are no longer of this world, we are no longer subject to the prince of the power of the air, no longer in subjection to Satan. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Our kingdom is something altogether different. And while we are still in the world, we are no longer its subjects and we are ambassadors of the kingdom to which we have been translated, the kingdom of his own dear son. Even now, though, we often don't live as such and it's to our great shame and unfaithfulness that that we who are saved in reality are currently reigning with Him. We don't live like this, but we are currently living and reigning with Christ who is seated on the throne. He's our head. He is currently reigning. He has conquered. And so we are by union with Him more than conquerors, more than conquerors. Romans 8:37 know in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not a claim that we won't face tribulation, but that we will conquer through tribulation and have the peace of God in spite of tribulation john sixteen thirty three says "I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. What does Christ tell us? I have overcome the world. we are more than conquerors through him and revelation seventeen fourteen one you all know that i'm verse I'm very, very fond of. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. All of this given to us while we were dead in trespasses, in sense god made us alive bestowing mercy and grace to hell deserving sinners through christ we are debtors to the love of god we are debtors to the mercy and the grace which flows out of his glorious sovereign love as I was preparing and looking over these verses and, and reading, a, a, a bit of a text kept coming to my mind from a poem um, that was made into a song. And I don't often end with a poem or anything like that. I, I typically want us to have our ending focused upon the Word of God. But I, I, I kept on coming back to this in my mind as I was, as I was going through this. And so this morning, I want to share with you guys in closing the words to a hymn entitled, Hail Sovereign Love. Some of you may know this. This was a song I learned about years ago, I think from Daniel Parks or Mark Webb. I'm not sure which one. Daniel Parks is a friend of ours who now is preaching at uh, the church there in Montana that Grace's dad started, uh, 60 years ago? He, he was pastored there for 50 years before he passed away. on not that right? Long time. Uh, Daniel Parks is now, and Daniel Parks gets his auto harp. And he's got this vibrato to his voice. A lot of people think my voice is loud. Well, Daniel Parks is, is louder. But he'll, he'll get his auto harp, and he'll stand there, and he'll sing these words to hell's sovereign love. And Mark Webb, another dear pastor, uh, dear friend of ours that's a that pastor to church in Wyoming and then in Olive Branch, Mississippi, also sang this, and he wrote a tune to it. Uh, this was actually misattributed for a long time to a individual who was hung during the Revolutionary War. There was a major John John Andre that was a uh, a man in the... Uh, British army who was involved in espionage and he was the one who actually recruited Benedict Arnold if you remember history. Benedict Arnold, the great uh, treasonous traitor uh, for the uh, for the colonists. But this John Andre, when he was hung, they found the, the words to this poem in his pocket. And uh, misattributed to him for a long time because of that, because evidently he or someone that was keeping him prisoner had written this out on a piece of paper with no author listed, nothing. But either he or the person who wrote it, this song meant enough to them that they had every word memorized. And the song or the the poem starts, Hail Sovereign Love, Which First Began the, the, the Scheme to Rescue Fallen Man. That's what kept playing in my mind as I was going through this text. That this is the scheme. This love that we read about here this morning is the scheme that God had the plan before the foundation of the world to rescue lost and fallen, sinful, dead people. Redeem them. Forgive them of their trespasses. Not to do away, not in any way clear the guilty and just do away with it, but He made a plan (coughs) whereby He Himself in the second person of the Godhead would come and bear the weight of that sin. To pay the price. Because God is just. And if He for one second is not just, He ceases to be God. He must be just. And so justice had to be met out. And it was given to the Son to have the wrath of Almighty God borne upon Him so that justice might be upheld. Listen to the words to this song. Hail sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail matchless, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high. Despised the mention of his grace too proud to seek a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view to Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard and mercy's angel's form appeared, she led me on with placid pace to Jesus as my hiding place. Should storms of sevenfold thunder roll and shake the globe from pole to pole, no flaming bolt could daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. On Him, on Him, Almighty vengeance fell, that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race, and thus became their hiding place. A few more rolling suns at most will land me fair, will land me on fair Canaan's coast, where I shall sing the song of grace and see my glorious hiding place the scheme to rescue fallen man this is what the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about and particularly those that we've been looking at this plan of God the Father to rescue fallen man placing them in Christ that when Christ died we were in him and died with him That when Christ was raised from the dead, we were in Christ and raised from the dead as well. That when He ascended and seated Himself at the right hand of the Father, that there we find ourselves also. And will one day, eternally, be in that place where we will sing this song of grace and see our glorious hiding place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth that we find in it. We thank You for Your grace and Your mercy and the love that You have which bestows that grace and that mercy upon us, Lord. We thank You for the mercy that we we receive and You... Helping us in our distress, you alleviating that distress and not giving us what we so justly deserve. We thank you for your grace that you bestow upon us all those benefits, all those blessings that belong to Christ, that you have given us in our union to Christ when you placed us in Him. That we may receive blessings of which we have no desert. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word that reveals these things to us. Lord, give us grace that we may meditate upon them, that we might draw closer to you in gratitude and thankfulness for the great work that you've done. It's in your precious and holy Son's name we ask these things and pray to you. Amen.